So we come to the final scene of, of, of the parable that we've been discussing for several weeks now, uh, often called the parable of the prodigal son. You all have heard, many of you have been believers for years, understand and, and know the story pretty well, I would guess. Uh, there's great joy, just like last week, when this younger son comes home. Great joy. But not everybody is happy. Now, you know, when Tom uh, comes up with the, the message schedule, uh, weeks in advance, he'll write the titles down and the scriptures and all that sort of thing so that everybody who's on our team can kind of figure out how to kind of put the service together. And so when he wrote the, the title, it, it was Home at Last. That was the title. And, and you know, that's a great title, but I, I just wanted something with a little more special sauce than that. It just didn't seem to pop. So if some of you are following me on the Facebook, you know what I came up with. I came up with this. He got a party... I didn't even get a goat. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the response I've been getting all morning. Yeah, if you, if you, let me say it again. He got a party. I didn't even get a goat. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, that helps me a little bit. Um, if you don't know what that's all about, I mean, a goat is usually funny anyway. Now, don't worry. No live animals are being involved this morning. Now, if it were John Robertson, he would bring some goats in but I'm not. So don't worry about that. But if you don't know the story, when we get to the end of it, you'll understand what that little subtitle is all about. But when we look at this final, these final scenes, one of the things we need to ask as we look at actually the whole chapter is why did Jesus tell this story in the first place? When we interpret scripture, one of the things we have to do is look back to the original intent. Why is this here? I mean, we can make up all kinds of reasons why it's here, but why is it really here? And in this chapter, chapter 15, which I think if you couldn't have any other chapter of the Bible other than Luke 15 to tell you about who God is, I would pick Luke 15. Because in it you find a picture of God that is unlike a picture of any God that has ever been portrayed in the world religions. In it you find the heart of the gospel message. But to find out why Jesus told these stories, we have to look at the first couple of verses of Luke 15. And let me read them for you. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's the problem. Jesus invites the wrong people to dinner. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were so upset and offended because they saw themselves as keepers of God's rules. They prided themselves on duty and obedience. Yet Jesus saw in them a lack of love and grace and compassion. And so these three stories follow this complaining session to try to illustrate to the religious leaders of the day what the heart of God really is like. You know, uh, almost in every story there is an element of joy when the lost is found, or a celebration when the lost is found. You know, I, uh, the angels rejoice. Rejoice with me. Let's have a party kind of a thing. And yet, the Jewish leaders were often quoted as saying this, there is joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. When we listen to these stories, we hear the exact opposite of that. 
It must have shaken them to their very core. They believed that God hates sinners and wants them obliterated. And yet Jesus claims to be a messenger from God and he's eating with these people who are so far. So keep that in mind as we finish the story. I know many of you who are longtime believers and Bible readers know this story, but I want to read the rest of it, and I want you to listen for maybe some new angle or new wrinkle that you've not heard before because the Spirit of God works through His Word, and maybe that's the best thing that will happen all day, me reading the rest of the story. So let me start in, in verse 17. When he came to his senses, that's the, the younger brother in the pig pen, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, said the father, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So why did Jesus tell this story? Well, he, sh- he wanted to show to the listeners of his day, the religious leaders, what God was really like. No religious person of Jesus' day ever imagined a God like this. The unique thing that Jesus taught about God was he cares about everybody. He is more merciful than we are. He is ready to forgive and forget and accept those who search him out. From the very first part of the story where the father generously gives over to the son that part of the inheritance he asked for, to the end of the story where he welcomes him home with a party, we see a picture of what God's love, what the father's love is really like. And it serves as a model for Jesus' ministry throughout the time he was on earth. A model of welcoming those who are far from him, not excluding highly offensive to those who first heard the message. This also reminds us of how we need to return to the Father, what it takes for Him to accept us back, in a sense, 
if you'll notice, you have to first face reality. Where I am is not working. I have made a choice that has taken me far from my father. I will turn and go back. He turns and goes back with a plan in mind. I will throw myself at his mercy. I will confess what I've done, and I will be willing to be obedient to the Father even as a slave, because anything's better than what I've got. That is a picture of the way we come back to our Father. Not like those proud religious leaders, God is so good to have me in his corner. He is, you know, he, he welcomes people like me. After all, I'm keeping all the rules. He must love me a lot more than everybody else. No, it's the person who realizes I can't do anything. I'm, I'm destitute without my father. So it shows us how to come to God. Then I think that probably the most important part of the story is he shows us how far from God's heart the listeners were how far removed their picture of God was so different than the, G, than the God Jesus portrays. They just could not comprehend it. Sinners and outcasts are welcome. You know, when you eat with somebody, that's a sign of acceptance and fellowship. It's, you know, you don't generally eat with people you don't like. I mean, maybe sometimes you do, but you don't usually. And so when these Religious leaders see Jesus rubbing shoulders with people who they considered unclean and far from God. They just couldn't get the picture because this is not the God they, they put in a box. This is a different kind of God. Now, whenever there is a powerful work of God, somebody's always going to grumble about it, really, because it threatens their picture of who God really is. Now, last week, in the, if you were here last week in this service, you will know that we went over time considerably. I hope nobody was saying, get those baptisms over with. I need to get to Applebee's. <laughs> but that's the grumbler. Why do we make room for those people? You know, how's that going to affect me? I'm going to miss my lunch. And yet, there was such celebration last week. You know, I was playing, and we played the song 27 times at least. <laughs> because the people, you know, people just jumped up. It was fantastic. And, and I was playing, I just watching, I just watching, I think, a movement of God. And it was so thrilling. Many of you were the same way. I thought Alan was going to jump out of his skin. <laughs> he turned Pentecostal on us. It was just... <laughs> yes! But there are people, I hope none of us, who would stand back and say, why that person? Why? They don't deserve this. Oh, God forgive us. You know, when Luke wrote this account, this part of the story is in there because the Jewish Christians were having such a hard time accepting pagan Gentiles as, as part of the family. How could we accept these dirty heathens? But Jesus made, especially out of lame people and lepers and widows and poor people. That's his specialty. Those people that the religious leaders of the day said, we have nothing to do with them. They don't deserve God. They aren't keeping the rules. If you only read one small book about this passage of Scripture, 
I would recommend you reading The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. Here's what he says. The original listeners were not melted into tears by this story, but rather they were thunderstruck, offended, and infuriated. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. Who's in and who's out? Who does God love and who doesn't he love? So the story ends without complete resolution. I don't know about you, but if, if I'm spending my hard-earned money to, to go to a movie, I like the, the ending to be kind of tied up, and everybody lives happily ever after. We don't get that with this story. We get a, well, what happened? And really, it's back to the religious leaders. What are you going to do about this story? How are you going to respond to this God who has opened his arms up to even those who seem far from him. We know how they ultimately responded, don't we? They were the driving force behind his crucifixion, behind his suffering and his death. The God that Jesus explains to us was just too big for them. So, now we have a little bit of a picture of how this related to them. Then the next step as we interpret the passage is, well, how does that cross these centuries to us. As we look back at how this seemed to relate to them, how does it relate to us? And fortunately, most of this goes a one-to-one correspondence. It's pretty close because most of us have the kinds of attitudes and actions that the religious leaders have or the younger son had. First of all, I think it should help us shape our understanding of God and maybe blow apart our understanding of what, who God is. When I was brought up in my little country Bible-believing supposedly Bible-preaching church, I heard this over and over. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Anybody heard that? Okay. I never heard this. Hate the sin, like the sinner. Intellectually, I could love them, but I was supposed to stay away from them because they might rub off on me. Their, Their evil ways might, you know, cause me to walk off the path. The question is, what about your ways causing them to come onto the path? Where do we intersect with the lives of people who are far from God? If we're staying away from them, how are they ever going to know that they're far from Him? And so this changes our category about how God relates to people. You know, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the word sin is this religious word that, you know, we think fundamental fiery preachers use. But sin just simply means to miss the target. Everyone has missed it. Not just those people far from God. You missed it too. If Paul says all have sinned, that means what? All. So you're just a different, you've missed the mark in a different way, right? Intellectually, we can begin to understand that. But in our heart, it's hard for us to understand how God could accept somebody that's not like me, that doesn't obey the rules, doesn't come to church, doesn't read the Bible, doesn't pray. It's great news that God has extended his love to all of us who have missed the mark. I think this story reminds us of how we need to respond to God's grace, how to come to him, in obedience and repentance and confession, not just being sorry that we got caught or we're in a bad situation, but truly being sorry that we have offended the Father and we're far from Him and turn back to Him with the intention of obeying anything 
to the point of being a slave. And I think most importantly, it shows us how to relate to the people whom God loves. Unlike the older brother, we are to welcome those who are far from him. You know, when the the first two stories were told, the story of the lost sheep and the story of the lost coin, Jesus starts the lost sheep story by, by saying this, which one of you having lost sheep? Now, who's the you? It's the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones he's speaking to. And he's making a very good case. Okay, you guys, if you lost a sheep, part of your valuable herd, wouldn't you go after it? Wouldn't you search for it? And wouldn't you bring it back? And wouldn't you celebrate because the loss is found? Part of your investment is returned. You would celebrate, right? And oh, by the way, like this little old woman who didn't have much, but she lost a coin, wouldn't you do the same thing if you lost some money? Wouldn't you go looking for it? And if you found it, wouldn't you rejoice? And yet, when this person who is far from God returns to him, you can't be happy. Who? You're more concerned about things than you are people. Recently, the Barna Group conducted a study titled, Are Christians More Like Jesus or More Like the Pharisees? The study found that most people who identify themselves as Christians, now this is people who call themselves Christians, in the United States are characterized by having the attitudes and actions of the Pharisees. Only 14% of the Christians who were surveyed seem to represent the attitudes and actions consistent with those that Jesus displays towards those far from him. I think we've got some work to do. So the the story really forces us to ask this question. Which of the brothers are you? We fall into two camps. Are you the younger son who rebels against the rules? Are you the older son who revels in rule keeping? Neither one are close to the heart of the father. Keller goes on to say, each one of the brothers, in other words, rebelled. But one did so by being very bad, and the other by being extremely good. Both were alienated from the father's heart. Both sons were lost. Neither son loved the father for himself. They both loved him for what they could get out of him, and nothing more. So this story reminds us, everyone is wrong, everyone is loved, and everyone needs to change every last one of us. So, if you identify this morning with the younger son, if you're not sure about this Christianity, following Jesus sort of thing, and you're just listening in and kicking the tires on this, this is a reminder to you. No matter what you've heard from other Christians or other people who take their Bible and wave it at you, you are never, ever, ever too far gone for God. Never. If you turn back, he's ready. If you say, there's no other way, I've just messed up my life, I don't know what else to do, you turn back to him and say, I'll do whatever you say, I'll obey, I have nowhere else to turn, he's ready. In fact, the picture of this father, who's a patriarch of the family, who, rich man, 
pulls up his robes in an undignified manner and runs to the sun. <coughs> that's, that's what we get there. He's ready. But for those of you who identify like me with the older son, remember this. It is never our job to identify whom God loves. It's not my business to choose Jesus' friends for him. He's got that all figured out. His friends are everybody. His friends ought to be my friends as well. Now, I already mentioned last week, as we watched this joy and celebration, people decided to cross the line of faith and make a decision to turn back home at last, a homecoming, a celebration, joy. A, Christ, uh, a Christian man once criticized Max Licato for his statements about lost people. Statements like, if God calls a person his child, shouldn't I call him my brother? Or, if God accepts others with their heirs, shouldn't I? Sounds a little elder brotherish, doesn't it? Here's what Max replied. It's so good, I just have to read it. I've never been surprised by God's judgment, but I'm still stunned by His grace. Seems that God is looking more for ways to get us home than for ways to keep us out. I challenge you to find one soul who came to God seeking grace and did not find it. Search the pages, read the stories, envision the encounters, find one person with a stern lecture. I dare you. Search. You won't find it. Seems to me God gives a lot more grace than we'd ever imagine. If God allows me with my foibles and failures to call him Father, shouldn't I extend that same grace to others? Listen, one thing's for sure. When we all get to heaven, we'll be surprised at some of the folks we see. And some of them will be surprised when they see us. At the end of the story of the prodigal sons, there's a feast, a homecoming. Revelation calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb, the marriage supper. The Lamb is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away our sins. We don't know exactly what that homecoming is going to look like. There's lots of speculation. We don't exactly know when it's going to happen. There's lots of speculation about that. But we know who is waiting for us, the Father with his arms open.